Well, y'all, it is a delight to be with you. Uh, I, I confess, I really have no idea what time it is. Um, in, uh, w- without any exaggeration at all, since May 2nd, this is my fifth day in the United States. Um, I took a group to, uh, to Israel, uh, to a group of students, and so I was there from May 2nd through the 19th turned around, and then we left on the 24th to go to England. Uh, this was the sort of last hurrah for our younger son who's getting married later this summer. Uh, and so we were over there. And then that little unexpected wrinkle um, that decided to pop into our lives, the one member of our family who had not had uh, COVID, my wife, got COVID. Um, and so, you know, thankfully she, she only had a cough. She didn't feel bad. Nothing was wrong in any respect. She just, just had a cough. Um, and, uh, but that cough seemed, because it didn't seem like it was allergies or anything like that. And so, uh, we, we took the test or, uh, we all three took the test mainly so that she could take the test. Um, and sure enough, it came back positive and God bless her. She just wept. Um, it, uh, she, she felt bad for extending the vacation, even though it's one of those things that there's not actually a moral quality to getting COVID. Um, and, uh, she certainly had not been reckless or anything like that. Uh, but what, what was most difficult for her was last Sunday, she had planned a shower for, um, our new daughter-in-law to be, and it, it wasn't, it wasn't a shower that she could lead. So, uh, but thankfully we have a, I have a wonderful family. And so my mom, my sister, my, uh, a cousin, an aunt, uh, nieces, all of them pitched in. And so took care of everything. And Michelle and I got to spend an extra week in Scotland. Um, so, uh, you know, there are worse places to, uh, to quarantine. Um, we, uh, we didn't actually have to quarantine because of the way that her days of isolation worked out. So, and so I said toward the end of the trip, "Hun, I, I know that doing a vacation with me is a lot like a marathon. And she said, you think? Uh, <laughs> so, so we went. Uh, we, we saw all kinds of things. But the worst part for me was I, I couldn't be with y'all. Uh, I, I planned this out. I was, you know, we were coming back early so that uh, we could be here um, and uh, be able to be with you to get this summer series started. And it was just not to be. So, I mean, we were in the land of Presbyterians over there in Scotland. So it was uh, ordained from eternity past that uh, I was not supposed to be here uh, last week. So who knows what terrible things could have happened had I been here uh, if, if that were the case. But... The, uh, uh, it, was a, it was a great trip, and uh, I am delighted to be with you all again, and, and to get to kind of dip into an area that we haven't done a whole lot with over this last decade. I've been counting up. I think this is my 10th summer uh, that I've been with you all, which is hard to believe. I'm, I'm only, you know, I, I, can, I can't pass for 29 anymore. It's really more like 31 now. Um, but so, you know, child phenom uh, to, uh, to, to be back with you. Um, we're going to look at the New Testament um, the, uh, this summer, and a very specific part of it, what we're going to look at is the Gospels. I love teaching the Gospels. I have this introduction to the Bible class that I teach at Sanford, and uh, my, don't, don't share that I said this. Uh, we'll keep this just between me and you. I think Paul gets more coverage than he you know, deserves uh, sometimes in the New Testament. I mean, he's always hogging around and elbowing and wanting more space in there. And they even give him letters that, you know, like Hebrews or something, uh, you know, just to give Paul some extra space. The, the persons uh, that we don't talk about quite as much are those authors of the Gospels. Um, I think those uh, four long works that start our New Testament are vital for understanding who Jesus is 
is for what early Christianity was. Uh, each one of those gospel writers gives us a, a different vision of uh, who Jesus is, and so I, I love looking at them. Now, I, I'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks. The gospels are strange. Because what we, what we really want is to just get four modern biographies of Jesus. And it's not what we have. What we really have are four ancient biographies of Jesus. And these ancient biographers did their history in a way that's a lot different than the way that we do our own history. So if you wanted to, to put it in one sense, we don't really have four photographs of Jesus from different angles. We have four different paintings of Jesus. And each one of those paintings has the brushstrokes of the author, the brushstrokes of the painter that comes through. And, and those, you know, maybe we might look at Mark and he's a little bit like Jan van Eyck. And so it's, it's so realistic that we, we feel like, oh, we can, we can see Jesus in there. We get over to John and there's some water lilies and, and parliament buildings that are being painted by his more Monet-like impressionistic version of Jesus. Each one of them has its own historical core but then also it's theological layer that it puts on top of them, and it's the, the blending between those that gives us a, a picture of Jesus that, frankly, I, I don't think any one biographer could have captured alone. So there's something that we're going to miss. You know, I'm a product of the Western, you know, uh, enlightenment, and so what I would like to see is video footage of Jesus. The Bible doesn't give us that. On the other hand, there's something that we gain. We get to see in unadulterated fashion these four different views of Jesus, these four different aspects of who Jesus is, um, and, and we would be uh, all the worse if we didn't have each one of those full-throated voices that comes through and tells us something about Jesus. So I, I, with each of the four Gospels, I will say, well, now, you know, this is probably my favorite. Uh, which is, is pretty lame since, you know, I, it's just me not picking uh, amongst the four Gospels. I like each one of them. And we're going to start off with Mark. And the reason we're going to start with Mark is because Mark was written first. So the, the Gospels are in the order where they're written in the New Testament because it's the way the early church thought they were probably written. Thought Matthew was written first and then Mark and Luke and John. Almost all scholars today would, would agree that it was Mark first, Matthew and Luke just about the same time, and then John comes last. So we're going to start with Mark, and um, I, I have a dilemma. Y'all love me. I wasn't sure that you would be willing to plop down thirty or forty dollars to get this book uh, to be able to bring with you to Sunday school. So what I have done instead is I've sort of you know kind of put the verses that we'll deal with on paper. Now I have the same problem that some of y'all have. I got my eyes lasered, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago. I can pick out the gender of a gnat at 50 yards, but I can hardly read the text that is right in front of me. Now, I know what some of you would like is, is that I make the, the text bigger so that you can see it better, and that would be great. And we could just bind, you know, our new version, large print versions of each one of these handouts that I would have to give you to make the print large enough for all of us to read together. I, I, I made it as big as I could, 
and still fit all of it that I needed to onto the handout that you've gotten. So bring those reading glasses if you need to, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll try to walk through these things. Eventually, it's going to get worse because I'm going to have them set side by side and so forth. But, um, well, it's like, did you ever have that moment when one of your kids came running in and they had something to tell you? And they were so breathless that they couldn't, couldn't quite get it out. Like, and, then, and, then, and then after that, and then, and then the other thing, and you're like, use your words, you know, slow down. This is Mark. When Mark writes, he writes on a deadline. He has this incredible sense of urgency that you can see if you look at the handout. One of the words that characterizes Mark's gospel is he uses this Greek word, euthus, which means immediately. And he uses it 42 times in his short gospel. In fact, he uses it 11 times just in the first chapter. There are so many of these immediately that translators finally dig in their heels and they just say, I'm not going to do it. I simply refuse to put immediately all of these times. And they fix Mark for us, which they, of course, should not do. Let me read to you all of the immediately's that occur in this passage and just kind of follow along in that first paragraph there where it says Mark 1. And you'll see how many of these, and and notice how many of them, they either paraphrase or drop. Verse 10, and immediately as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. Verse 12, and the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 20, immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee. Verse 21, they went to Capernaum and immediately when the Sabbath came. Actually, I love that one. It's almost like a divine light switch. You know, God just hits it and boom, it's the Sabbath. Um, you know, so it's, 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 it's the opening scene of, you know, a Fiddler on the Roof, right? When you'll be late. I won't be late. Um, it's, it's immediately the Sabbath came. Um, it says, uh, verse 23, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Verse 28, immediately. His fame began to spread through all the region of Galilee. Verse 29, immediately as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew. Verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and immediately they told him about her. Verse 42, immediately the leprosy uh, left him. Verse 43, after sternly warning him, he sent him away immediately. It's this, I, I, I almost like to translate this, and then... It's like, and then, and, and then, and, and then, and, and then, it's, now I realize it's overly animated here, but this is the way that Mark writes. He has this kind of staccato-like effect in the way that he just pushes his narrative along. He shifts so rapidly from one scene to the next to the next. I, I remember uh, talking to my parents one time. They had gone to see one of the books, and they said, well, the truth is, we got kind of seasick. And I thought, what? What how did you get seasick? I mean, you weren't watching Titanic. Um, you know, how did you get seasick? And they said, I don't know. It just it shifted so much. Well, I went to see it. They were right. If you've watched an older movie, it's almost like you know they've put one camera on a play that's happening, and you know characters enter from stage right or stage left, and some maybe they'll shift, and someone will sit in the couch, or someone will stand, or something like that. But it's basically just a kind of a set piece that's there. You watch a modern movie, and it's just a scene after a scene after a scene. And when you watch this one, it was almost hard to figure out where to focus. Mark writes like the Bourne movie was filmed. He, he shifts rapidly from one scene to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, as he pushes his narrative along. It's this rapid-fire shift in scene. 
Part of it, I think, goes along with the fact that Mark is quite apocalyptic in the way that he writes. Mark is convinced that the world is about to end. In fact, I'll I'll do a a lecture later uh, in this series where we'll talk about how Luke and Mark kind of come at the end times from a different angle. Uh, Mark is writing just before the first Jewish revolt. He he hears the the tread of the Roman boots that are coming on their way to uh, invade Israel. And so he believes this is that moment when Jesus must be coming back. And he almost gives the sense of someone in a prison cell having to quickly write out his last will and testament for those who are going to, uh, to eventually read this. This is the way Mark writes, and so he's writing on a deadline. Mark is a, a whirlwind ride when you read him. In fact, no time for a birth narrative. No time for any of that early stuff. He just dives right in, in media res, and is saying, okay, let's go. Here's the gospel of Jesus. This is Mark's gospel for us. One of the the themes that kind of tags along with this is that Mark gives this tremendous emphasis to the authority of Jesus. Mark is, uh, probably more than any other gospel, makes Jesus' authority a prime uh, subject that he wants to emphasize. Um, When you look at Mark chapter 1, you'll you'll notice I have a paragraph here where I've included a few verses. Notice, I just love this particular scene where it says, uh, look at verse 16. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. I love that. I just, (laughs) I had this thing that I call Bible speak, and there are these verses that pop up in the scriptures, and I've probably shared this with you many times, I don't know, but they just, I don't, maybe it's just my, you know, weird sense of humor, but there are certain verses in the Bible that just kill me. Um, you know, in Genesis 10, you know, it's, uh, you know, Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. <laughs> what is that for? Uh, there's, there's this wonderful one, you know, Miriam and Aaron confronted Moses over the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. <laughs> I just love that. It's like, thank you. We would not have gotten that if you hadn't pointed that out. This is one of my favorites here. He says, for they were fishermen. Thank you, Mark. You know, you're writing on a deadline, but you took time to tell us that one. Um, so they saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. We're too familiar with the Bible if that line doesn't strike you as odd. Here is this guy. There's no evidence in the text that Jesus knew these guys beforehand. And I think he probably did. But he just comes up to them and says, follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. And they go, Joe, okay. And they just leave. They just leave their nets and go and follow this guy. I mean, this is the old, you know, thankfully y'all are an audience that I can use this for and we'll get it. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. <laughs> I say this to my students. They have not the foggiest idea who I'm talking about. This is this line. Jesus says, follow me. And they go, Yes, sir. I mean, it's when Jesus speaks to people in this gospel, this is the way that they respond. It says, verse 19, he went a little farther, and he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in the boat, mending their nets. I'm surprised he didn't say, for they were fishermen. Um, immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They just like, Dad, we're out. 
And they just follow this guy for the next three years, seemingly. This is the way that Jesus speaks. When Jesus is in the synagogue and teaching, look at verse 22. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, the idea here is that if you ever go back and read some of the early rabbinic writings, it is this kind of uh, conversation of footnotes. Well, Rabbi Yochanan says that we should do such and such. But Rabbi Ishmael says that, on the other hand, we should do this. But Rabbi Akiva says this. Jesus never does this. He just says, I say. And this is unprecedented. In fact, it's a, it's a subject that my students honestly struggle with a little bit. The reason they struggle is because they're accustomed to writing term papers in high school. And in those term papers, some of y'all, I mean, you're educators, and so you know that if you're getting a student in high school to write a term paper, you don't care that much about what the student has to say. What you care about is, can you do research? Can you figure out where the, the outlines and contours of the scholars themselves, where they have their own voice? And they don't want to do it. They want to, well, you know, there's a, the number one offense in my class is appeal to authority. They will just find somebody, quote them, and because somebody else said it at one point in time, well, they have thereby proved it. Um, and I'm like, no, I want to know what this one said. Surely someone disagreed with that person. What did this person say? And then you sort out their arguments and tell me what you think about it. Jesus takes this to the next level. He doesn't cite footnotes at all. He just says, I say. And when people hear this, it is unprecedented. They're like, whoa, get a load of this guy. Who, who, who is this? You know, and that's one of the things they'll kind of raise as an objection to him. Who does this guy think he is? He's just, just a craftsman. Where does he get off teaching in this way? If you look at verse 24, when Jesus commands spirits to come out of people, those spirits come out of people. Even in verse uh, 27, uh, you'll notice it says, They were all amazed, and they kept asking one another, What is this, a new teaching, with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Now, you, you can imagine the result of this kind of exercise of authority. What's going to result from this is there will be a swirl of controversy that always follows Jesus in his ministry. When If he's going to, to reach out, to step out, and well, there are about four or five of these, but we'll, uh, we'll look at just a few of them. Look at the one in Mark chapter 2. Uh, Mark chapter 2, this is a passage where it says, uh, When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of him. When they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, y'all, there are a couple of lines that are missing. Digging through the roof and lowering down a, a paralyzed man, it never mentions a word about it disturbing the goings-on in this room. I, I, I don't understand how Jesus continues to teach at this point. 
when I was in college, I had this experience where uh, I, I missed the, uh, the second coming of the flood that apparently y'all had last week. Um, and uh, there was a time uh, when I was in college where there was similar kind of rain like that. It had just rained and rained. And uh, we were in the old southeastern building that was over there on uh, Pawnee or Nyazuma, whichever one that was there. Um, and uh, so it was one of these older buildings. And here I am in rapt attention listening to the professor and and something, for, I, don't, I don't know why, maybe it's just because God loves me, I just drew my attention over to this side, and I, I just, I glanced this way, and it was a, a room that had those kind of rectangular ceiling tiles, and one of them was bowed like this. And it took a second or two before it dawned on me why it was bowed, and I went, uh, and before I was able to get a word out, it collapsed. And probably two gallons of water and 30 pounds of ceiling tile fell on one of my friends, uh, Kevin Ravenscraft. And God bless him. I mean, he's just sitting there. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I mean, what does one do when you're in class and, you know, three gallons of water and 30 pounds of ceiling tile just falls on you. I mean, it was, it was like that scene in the Memphis Bell where they shoot the, the can of tomato soup and each one of them thinks it's the other one that's been shot there. It's like, did I just explode? What, what's this happened to me? And, and so we couldn't continue class at that point. I mean, poor Kevin's over there bedraggled. God bless him. He was a commuter student who had driven from Anniston. And so he has to drive back to Anniston, you know, with ceiling tile in his hair and so forth. We, Class was done at that point. Here's Jesus just teaching away while they dig through the roof and lower the paralyzed guy down there as if nothing's happening. It's, there's a line that's missing in there. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. That's an awkward moment. What do you do if you are the guys that have lowered the paralyzed man down at that point? Son, your sins are forgiven. Do we hoist him back up at that point? Do we? It's like, thank you, Jesus. That's, uh, that's great. It's the, it's the scene in Caddyshack where Bill Murray's talking about, uh, you know, how the Dalai Lama has told him he'll one day achieve enlightenment. So it's, he's got that tucked away for the future. They didn't lower him down there to get his sins forgiven. They lowered him down there because he was paralyzed. What do you do when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven? Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this fellow speak this way? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They weren't wrong on that one, actually. At once. Would you like to guess what word that is? And, uh, <laughs> immediately. <laughs> Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sons are forgiven, or to say, stand up, take up your mat, and walk? You know, there's an interesting way that Jesus has phrased that. Because he doesn't say which one of these is easier to do. He says, which one is easier to say? The one that's easier to say is not stand up, take up your mat, and walk, because that one we can prove. The one that's easier to say is, son, your sins are forgiven. Because what's the proof? I mean, it's not as if once your sins are forgiven, you know, forgiven kind of glows upon your forehead or something like that. We can't verify that one. It's easier to say, son, your sins are forgiven. So now he's going to heal him to show that he had the power to do the forgiveness of sins too. 
But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. He stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Now the point about this story is Jesus does this in a way that will deliberately raise questions in people's hearts. They lowered the man down so that he could be told, take up your mat and walk. Why does Jesus start with, son, your sins are forgiven? It's because he wants the people there to confront something about who Jesus is. Jesus is laying down a marker and saying, I'm the one who can forgive sins. And he forces them to confront that aspect of him. He's going to do this in four or five stories in a row. He'll go and he'll dine at Matthew the tax collector's house. Now, he could have had Matthew over somewhere else. He could have just talked to Matthew outside. Why does he dine in Matthew's house? Because he wants them to confront this issue. I would agree. Um, look in verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, now, by the, by the way, what they're doing here, it, it's, it's a mild form of agriculture to be sure. What, what they're doing is they're walking through this grain field. You know, you pick up a grain. It's kind of like eating a few green peanuts or something like this. They aren't trying to make a meal of it. They're just having a snack. But truthfully, they are doing something that they shouldn't be doing if they are, are picking these heads of grain on the Sabbath there. But notice the way Jesus responds to them. He said to them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God when Aviatar was high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Now you can see the comparison here. There's a law. The law says don't do agriculture on the Sabbath. There's a law. The law says only priests can eat the showbread that's in the temple. And yet in both cases, Jesus says it's okay. Well, what's the logic behind saying that it's okay? There are moments when we have to decide between ritual requirements and human needs. And in those circumstances, human needs trump ritual requirements. In David's case, the men were starving. It's okay. Let them eat the bread. In Jesus' case, the disciples were hungry. It's okay. Let them eat the grain. There are, there are times when commands that we find in Scripture will conflict with one another. And we need a rubric for deciding which way do we go with these two commands. I, I'll, I'll give you an example. It's one that I actually had an argument with a, a professor one time over. This was when I taught high school is that uh, this professor was absolutely convinced there are no circumstances under which it is ever appropriate to lie. And I disagreed with that. I think the scriptures are, are for example, the midwives. The midwives, they, they shamelessly lie. Oh, as much as we wanted to kill the little Hebrew boys, we, we couldn't because they're, the Hebrew women, they're so vigorous, and by the time we get there to, to give, you know, help the woman give birth, boom, the kid's already out and they're gone. And so Pharaoh, we, we were not able to kill them. This is not true. Or Rahab. 
when Rahab protects the spies and says they went that away, this is a moment where she's protecting human life. And I think one of the most vivid examples of this is the scriptures do say don't lie. And the scriptures also say submit to the government. And the scriptures also say protect human life. So what do you do if you are hiding Anne Frank's family? You're lying and you're defying the government. And you're doing exactly the right thing because this is the circumstance in which protecting human life is more important than following this other commandment that's there. This is the rubric uh, for how we decide in those difficult cases when um, there are actually only three laws in Judaism that can never be broken. You can never murder, you can never rape, and you can never commit idolatry. And so those are the circumstances where you have to say, I'm, I'm sorry, there's no Nuremberg defense that, you know, if, if, if it means that I have to die rather than kill this innocent person, then I'll just have to die. If it means that I have to do like the three Hebrew children and say, you know, O king, we have no need to answer you concerning this. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us. And if not, we still won't bow. Those are the three circumstances, murder, rape, and idolatry, where we say we'll just have to die if that's what it takes eating non-kosher food, having to tell a lie, those sorts of things. Those are the, the circumstances where you can violate one of God's commands to preserve human life. But notice how Jesus ends this. Wouldn't it have been simpler for Jesus to just say, you know what, guys, truth be told, it's not going to kill you if you don't have the grain snack on the way back toward home. Why don't you just, just hold off? We'll follow the law, and we'll, we'll still get dinner when we get home. Jesus wants the Pharisees here to confront an idea. The idea is, then he said to them, the Sabbath... That last line means, and I'm the one who gets to tell you how to follow the Sabbath. Jesus does this in a particular way because he wants the people that he's talking to to confront the idea I'm the one who defines Shabbat for us. I'm the one who can forgive sins. I'm the physician who comes to heal those who are sick. I'm the one who defines what the Sabbath is. Look lastly at uh, Mark chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. You know, we know exactly what that means. I, I know what I always think of in my own mind uh, when I was uh, a youth pastor over on the west side of Birmingham. Um, I started uh, our neighborhood had changed and so I decided I'm going to reach out to the people who are in our neighborhood and so I started this boys basketball league oh the foolishness of youth uh, I was there in in this gym I would have like a hundred kids that were over there from the middle school across the street and the adult supervision was me <laughs> and that was it so it was me with a hundred kids there Oh, my goodness. Um, but uh, I, I remember vividly, you know, because you had to prepare snacks for everybody. And so, you know, I've got to pour 100 cups of Kool-Aid. And so I literally, we had this nice kitchen, and there was this metal thing, and I just took it and went, shh. I was like a bartender, you know, with the, the thing of Kool-Aid there. Um, but we had a wonderful time, and eventually their older brothers started to come to youth group, and I uh, had wonderful, fond memories of many of them. Um, two of the guys that came were twins, Amar and Omar. Amar was just an Adonis. He was about 6'2", could slam a basketball in every fashion you could imagine. I know because I still have like Nike imprints on my forehead. Uh, I used to have these long Fabio-like locks before uh, Amar did this to me. Uh, but he was, just, he was just wonderful. Omar, half of Omar looked just like Amar, but the other half looked as if he had had a stroke. 
and I, I think it was congenital, and so he had a, a slight speech impediment because you know of the, the musculature not working quite right with his uh, his his jaw. His left leg was I, I think actually it was his right leg was uh, you know slightly skinnier than the other, and his hand was kind of curled in like this. Oh, I loved Omar. He was a great kid. Well, their dad wasn't living with them, and so Omar asked me if I would teach him how to drive. And so there we were in my 1981 Ford F-150, Blue Betty, um, and we are driving through the, the, the highways and byways of Inslee as I'm teaching Omar how to drive. When I took him down to the uh, highway patrol place there on Arkadelphia Road, I was more nervous while he was out doing his driver's test than I was at the birth of my children. Um, you know, I'm pacing back and forth. It's a, it's, you know, I'm thankful that I was not a smoker or I would have, you know, been, you know, churning down several at a time because I was so nervous he, he came he passed and it was everybody looked at it so odd because here we are like Rocky and Apollo Creed you know running and hugging one another at this moment when he passed it was it was just great this is who I, I think of when I think of this this man with a withered hand but this is a tough story they watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him you ever have one of these moments, we, the, the way that I describe it with my sons is we say, don't do this. And what I mean when I say don't do this is don't think about the thing that's right here and ignore what the long range picture is. Road rage is an example of doing this. It's where you become so angry over something that's immediate that you go in Birmingham where there were four teenage kids were killed over a hat. It's this kind of thing. It's, it's, it's that sort of devastation over something so trivial. Here in this particular scene, the, the leaders that are opposing Jesus, they, they're thinking this far ahead. They've lost their sense of priority. What's more important, being able to accuse this guy or this man with the withered hand? It says, to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man, who had the withered hand, come forward. He said to them, it must have been awful to argue with Jesus, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? How does one answer that question? I mean, this is like the, have you stopped beating your wife kind of question. If you say yes, oh, so you used to beat your wife. Well, I mean, no. Oh, so you're still beating your wife. I mean, this is the... How can they answer in this case? Here is, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? Well, if they say it's lawful to do good, he's going to heal the guy. If they say, well, you're supposed to do harm, well, they can't say that one. And so what do they do? It says, but they were silent. They knew that they couldn't answer, and so they don't say anything at all. Notice Jesus' response. He looked around at them with anger. He's angry at them because they have so gotten their priorities out of whack. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. You, you see what they've gotten so wrong is that they're more concerned about attacking him than they are about the fate of this guy. But now step back again. Much like the other stories, couldn't Jesus have handled this a different way? 
This healing this man today, it's because he wants them to confront something about who Jesus is. I'm the one who can forgive sins. I am the physician who reaches out to people who are sick. I am the one who can tell you how to observe the Sabbath. I am the one who tells you that people are more important than the Sabbath, and you're going to have to face this. Now, the truth is, from this point forward, we know Jesus never has a chance. That Jesus is going to be opposed by all quarters of the world that he enters into. In some cases, the, the, the challenge that he, faces, that he faces is going to be political. The Romans are not going to like him. I mean, here, here is this guy who's coming in and is challenging Roman authority. We'll, maybe we'll have time to deal at a... Um, in a later lecture with the, the whole story of Jesus casting the demons into the swine. It's, it's one of my favorite stories um, in the, the New Testament. In fact, there's a, I, when I take my students to Israel, it's, uh, they ask me what my favorite place is, and it's one of them. Corsi, right there on the northwest or northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, this beautiful story that's there. Well, there is symbolism that is just latent in this story. When Jesus cast the demons into the swine... Remember what the demons had said what their name was? They said, our name is Legion, for we are many. Well, the 10th Legion was parked right over the mountain where Jesus does this miracle. And the symbol of the 10th Legion was a boar, a pig. And the sea, if, I mean, you've, you've been with me with enough series at this point to know that the sea is dangerous, the sea is bad. The sea is essentially the, the emblem of hell and chaos. When Jesus cast the demons into the swine and the swine run into the sea, he says... In effect, this whole system is doomed, and I'm the one that's dooming it. He sends this Roman legion. He sends this Roman way of brutal authority right into hell. When Jesus says at a later point, you know, on this I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, what he's saying is, Rome, we're coming, and you're not going to be able to stop us. So Romans are not going to like him. The Herodians are not going to like him. Because the Herodians are just collaborating with Rome. I mean, they get their position because they're on um, Rome's side. It's interesting that Jesus holds the Herodians in just absolute contempt. When he is appearing before Pilate and Pilate figures out that he's a subject of Herod, he sends him over to King Herod. Jesus won't even speak to him, will not even talk to him. The, the Herodians are not going to like Jesus. The, uh, the, the zealots aren't going to like Jesus for the opposite reason. Because what the zealots want is for Jesus to, to take up arms against Rome. And Jesus is going to say, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not going to do this militarily. I'm going to do this in a different way. Religiously, well, the religious leaders aren't going to like Jesus either. If it's the Sadducees, the Sadducees were collaborators with Rome. And as, the, as a result of their collaborating, they got control of the temple. So when Jesus goes after the temple, the Sadducees will go after Jesus. The Pharisees are not going to like Jesus either. And the, the truth is, Jesus has no time for the Sadducees. Hardly ever speaks to them. He's very contemptuous of them when he does. He'll just say to them, you're wrong because you don't know the Bible. Um, he, he doesn't talk to them a whole lot. He argues with the Pharisees constantly. And the reason is because Christians and Pharisees were just like this. They're like siblings. There, there are Christians who are Pharisees and who remain Pharisees through the book of Acts. Pharisees and Christians aren't opposite to one another. They're blood brothers with one another. But they disagree on a couple of points, and they're not going to like Jesus over that issue. He's not going to like the fact that they have taken the purity laws and blown them all out of proportion and made them a burden that regular people just can't seem to follow.
and then he's not going to And so from every single quarter that you can imagine, Jesus is going to encounter trouble. What we're going to talk about next week is how does he weave his way through that? We'll talk about this very interesting idea that's in Mark's gospel especially. It's called the Messianic Secret. It all has to do with how Jesus wins his way through these various forces that are opposed to him. And then we're going to talk about another theme that Mark has, which just, it's on every page. It's this idea of disappointing disciples. God bless them. In the gospel of Mark, the poor disciples are just pugnaciously resistant to everything that Jesus wants to tell him. This is the way that Mark's gospel comes to us. It is a unique voice. And it's a voice that gives us so much about the person that we follow, the person of Christ. I hope that you will enjoy this summer of looking into these Gospels because every one of them has got its own voice that it will give us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the works that your evangelist wrote down for us. Lord, we thank you so much for their picture of Jesus that they have contributed to us. Lord, I thank you even for the places where their voices are dissonant, where their voices disagree, because they help us to cast Jesus into a slightly different light and see him in a new way. Help us to gain a greater appreciation of your son this summer. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.